chapter 12. I have a slide. Let's see if that works. There it is. That is Seattle, Washington. My dad was up here introducing me, um, and that's where we're from. So raise your hand if you've been to Seattle. It looks completely different than here. Uh, it's a beautiful city, but I do like coming down here. Uh, we've, we've been in San Diego. I'll talk about that for a minute. Uh, in a minute. But we lead the churches in, uh, in Seattle, along with my wife, Carla, and we have 600 people, uh, a staff of 16 people. And I feel like the church is doing really well. We have a staff in Seattle that I like, and that is our 13 of our 16 staff people were converted in Seattle. Yeah, that's kind of cool. And our staff is young. The average age is 32 and a half. That is young for a staff that size. Uh, All that to say we're really serious about raising up and training the next generation in Seattle. Uh, Seattle is a great city. It's the home to many technological companies, and it's the fastest growing city in America, and all those kinds of things. Uh, it brings with it some real challenges building the church, but God is enabling us to do some great things, um, and it's just an exciting place to be. So, here's a side of my family, right? Pressing the green one. There it is. That's that's my family not in Seattle. That is Mexico. So, uh, my daughter Ellie is on the left. She's 15 years old. That's my son, Hunter. He goes to Washington State University. Uh, it's my wife, Carla, who really wishes she could be here today, but she can't. Uh, and that's me. And then my son, Zach, who uh, went to Seattle University and is newly married. They got married on August 11th. So they live in the in the Bellingham. They go to the Bellingham church. So that's my family. Uh, and it's really good to be with you today. Amen. Appreciate the introduction from my father even though he kind of threw me under the bus just a little bit during that. It is really good to be down here. I think you even said that girls are more blessed than boys. Did he say something like that? Or more special? I actually have to say, three boys in one house, I think that's actually true. I have a daughter and two boys. And every time I see my mom now, uh, who lives up in, uh, actually she lives in Tucson, she used to live up in, up in the Seattle area, I, I start with this. Mom, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Three boys is really hard to raise. Um, and But you guys did such a great job. It's so good to be with my dad and my stepmom, Janet. And to be with all of you today. Amen? Um, I'm really... Yeah, I thought that was, was not working. Sometimes you just got to figure these out in real time. Amen? Yes, amen. I can use this with you. Just keep talking. Yeah. Keep talking with you standing right there. <laughs> Pay no attention to the guy standing too much. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do what he says. Just got you back. How's everybody doing out there? Because we're trying to figure it out up here. I'm really grateful to be here today. We are getting to know Scott and Danielle Sweeney, and we love them. Uh, great couple. We had a breakfast the other day in San Diego. The fellowship was awesome. The breakfast was huge. We ate at this place called Swami's in San Diego. Uh, and we all four could have shared one breakfast. But it was just a great time. Uh, we love the stuff they're doing here. We love the way you take care of our parents, the church. Uh, and we just love the relationship we're building. We were both in San Diego. Are you still back there? Yeah, there you Is it working now? Okay, he's going to go let me know. Let's give this guy a hand right now. We were over in San Diego for what's called an ICOC leadership meeting. And it's our second meeting since we did this thing called 2.1. Have you heard of that? Yeah. It's our new organizational structure. And the name is completely uninspired. 2.1. we got to change it or just not call it anything. But I want to tell you what it was, because many people have asked me, what is that? Last year, you're coming back up here? You want this back? You want to switch? Okay. This guy's just awesome. Okay. Let's do that. Can you hear me now? Um, okay. 
there were some people a while ago that wanted to change things a lot. And basically, a big, new, radical, bold structure. And they said, since this is our second iteration of leadership and organization in the ICOC, that's 2.0, let's take it up to 3.0. There was another group of people, uh, and you may know all about this, but there was another group of people that say, hey, instead of radically changing the structure, which you can do, but instead of radically changing things, let's just improve and deepen and mature the things we're doing already. So let's change us a little bit more than the structure, and we call that 2.1. And so, long story short, a bunch of people got together last fall in Panama, voted on it, and everyone, by the majority, said we want 2.1. Did you get all that? Did you write all that down? It may make sense to you, maybe not, but we had our second meeting since we enacted this new organization uh, I happen to be the regional family chair for the Northwest Churches and the leader of the Seattle Church, so that's why I'm there. Sounds really important. It's really not. Um, but here's, what, here's the best way I can explain 2.1 or whatever we want to call it moving forward. Um, we all have to admit, we have to admit it as a movement, and you have to admit it in a church, that structure of a church or a movement is not just the answer to making your church grow. You need some structure, don't you? With no structure, there's all kinds of things that can come into the church. But if you rely on structure, you could be missing the mark. Structure is structure. Uh, it's what goes on inside the structure that actually makes the difference. So structure simply helps us organize things in a way that best allows us to take the principles that we really believe in and put those into practice in the best way possible. The truth is you can make your structure anything you want it to be. You can't find a lot of book, chapter, verse for the structures. You can find a few things, but not as much as we sometimes think, right? Um, what what 2.1 is predicated on, though, it's really what we're trying to, to get out in the, the leadership structure of the ICOC now is uh, more inclusive, which brings more voices. More voices is better. Um, much more broad. We've actually almost doubled the size of the delegates uh, that are in the room. And it's predicated on just having a lot of conversations about any decisions that are made. So I will say this. People have pointed out this could be a slower process. But what I say to that is, who cares? I mean, that's my opinion. I'm not for speed. I'm for quality. What we're doing is too important to push it's certainly too important to go so slow that we don't make a difference. But it's super important, the things we're building. So what we need to do is focus on the right things. And I'll tell you, what I saw in San Diego last week was very inspiring. A um, lot of mutual respect, a lot of patient conversations, um, and I would say a renewed sense of unity and partnership. So the things that are coming to the forefront on our meetings have less to do with personalities. And quite frankly, they have more to do with principles. And if we're fighting for anything, it's not always good to fight. It's not always bad to fight. But if you're fighting for anything, I think we're fighting for the right things, which is unity, not influence. These are good things. It reminds me of a guy that you know very well in Southern California named John Wooden and a quote that he said one time. And I know you've heard it a million times, but it made me think of that this week. It's this. It's amazing how much can be accomplished if no one cares who gets the credit. It's really important. I will say that I love the direction we're going. I love the conversations and how they're happening. And I just believe it's only going to get better. Amen? I have a lesson today, and it's called Finishers. And I want to talk a little bit about the journey of the Christian life. And it's good because I look around this group, and I see people that are on all phases of the journey. It looks like there's some people in here that have started the Christian life. It looks like uh, there's not too many people in here that look like you're at the end of the Christian life. It's at least not, Lord willing, that we know. Uh, but it looks like there's a lot of people all over the pathway of the Christian life. And I want to talk about that today. And the scripture we're going to stay in is Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. So if you can turn over there, I want to read starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Considered him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that he will not grow weary and lose heart. The author of Hebrews, in my opinion, provides us with one of the richest, most meaningful passages in the Bible. He brings to mind a race that as Christians, we're all running. We're all on some leg of this race. Now, if you know the book of Hebrews, you know it is about, the book of Hebrews is written really to just basically encourage Christians who are being heavily persecuted and have a lot of reasons to be discouraged, to encourage them not to quit. Do not quit your life that you devoted to Jesus and go back to Judaism. That's an empty way now. Stay the course. Don't give up. Don't even, don't even give in to the temptations when you're weary that come. Do not quit. Do not give up. It's all over there. And Jesus is just lifted high as the example we should look to. He went through similar things and didn't quit. And we are all grateful he didn't quit. Because of that, we, we have salvation. Right after talking about those heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, a, a chapter we've read many times, just the, the hall of faith, as we like to call it. Right after talking about those heroes in chapter 12, he turns to those left here. And that includes us, the community of believers that are living our faith in real time, We haven't left this earth yet, but we're living out the Christian life. And he has some things to say about us. And in this very short passage, we're encouraged to keep going. The Christian race, the Bible says, is clearly marked out for us. If you've noticed, the Christian walk has a clear beginning. Remember remember the day you, you made Jesus your Lord and got baptized? That was a clear an inspiring beginning. Some of you have maybe just did that. And that's the beginning of your Christian walk. And then we know it has an end. We don't know when that end is going to come, right? But we know what the finish line looks like. And, and we know if, if we get a little older and we see some of our friends getting near the end, we think about the end just a little bit more than we used to. But then between the beginning and the end, there's all these experiences in the middle, right? And some are just like incredibly rewarding, very positive. Man, I'm glad I'm a Christian. Others, not so much. Others make us tempted to quit. The book of Hebrews says, don't do it. And I love one of the things they say here. The author says, don't do it. Take encouragement from the cloud of witnesses that are basically cheering you on. Those people that have already finished the race. I, I brought something for show and tell today. Because you got to have something, right? This is a medal that I got after I finished a marathon. You can go ahead and clap. It's really hard. Thank you. I ran it with my dad. We ran the San Diego Marathon in 2004. Uh, it was a really incredible, awesome, completely agonizing experience with my father. But I finished, and that was the goal, was to finish. I don't think I finished in a blaze of glory, but I did finish. And here's a picture as proof, because you need photographic evidence if a guy's in town. And, and before you even say it, before you even say it, my dad looks exactly the same. And my hair is now gray, and I shave it, so I don't look the same. You're like, who's that guy on the right there? I, I recognize JJ looks exactly the same. This is right after we finished it, and we're much more in agony than that picture shows, but we are very, very happy. Can barely stand up, but very happy, right? Now that I've done it, now that I've finished it, I've run six half marathons and then the marathon. But now that I've finished that, I've made a promise. I'll never do it again. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've run a marathon in here. Nobody. You did in the back right there? Let's give her a hand. That's pretty amazing. Did you, did you run more than one? Yeah. Okay, so usually I've done this lesson other places, and lots of people raise their hand, and many people raise their hand 
like they've done more than one. And I just say, they're insane. It's really hard. It's a very, very difficult thing. Now, a marathon has a clear beginning. Remember, remember kind of showing up to Balboa Park there and you see the thousands of people. Everyone's completely fired up. There's no one not smiling. There's a few hardcore runners that know what's coming and they're, they're serious, but it's pretty exciting and there's music playing. Then I know what the ending looks like. It's, it's some tape and a band and that banner and lots of pictures and all, and a medals, right? I know that. But I just didn't know it was in the, in the middle of the beginning and the end. I heard about it. I didn't take it that seriously. There were some that were really easy. There was, there was a portion that was just really easy. I would say mile zero to five was just a piece of cake. I didn't do the thing that most people do, which is sprint out. I really ran out carefully. We had a plan and a goal, but it seemed pretty easy. Didn't seem very hard. It's the kind, it's the part of the race where you go, what's the big deal about a marathon? Right? And you always come to regret that. There's some that are sort of hard. I would say mile 5 to 13. It's like, ooh, that kind of hurt, but it's not too bad. Or I'm getting kind of cramped up, but, but this is good. And, you, and it's just, it's a little harder, but it's pretty easy still. And then there's the brutal part. For some people, not as brutal as others. 13 to 26.2, which if you think about it, is another half on top of the half you just ran. But anyway... But I have to tell you one thing, one thing that encouraged me to keep going and one thing that helped me to finish was the cloud of witnesses. There were people, and I didn't anticipate this, all along the route that were just cheering me on and cheering my dad on. Here they are right there. That's, this isn't the marathon we ran, but, but this is what you will see at a marathon. They're all holding signs and they're all encouraging you. This is a cloud of witnesses. Some of them we knew. My wife and Janet would show up. They, they, we'd turn the corner. They'd have had signs. And they would encourage us. And they would, would scream our names. And it would be very encouraging. Then get in the car and move along to the next, about four miles down the road, right? <laughs> but the bulk of the people that were cheering me on, I had no idea who they were. And they weren't just like... Go ahead. Good. They were really cheering us on and screaming. There were people saying, don't you quit. They were really pointing at me and making sure that I didn't get tired, especially as it got later in the race. I don't know who they were. Probably, probably loved ones of other runners. But some of them were so passionate. And I thought, I think they've ran a marathon before. They understand how hard it is. But whatever the case, it made running the race a lot easier. It's not an exaggeration to say that they kept me going when I was feeling discouraged, I hit that wall, which is basically what you hear about with, with running. The wall is the intersection of your physical limitations and your emotional limitations. Anybody ever, ever hit that wall? It's, I, I used to kind of say, I'm not going to hit that. And then I ran the marathon and I did. I don't know if you remember dad about mile 17. By the way, he didn't hit it. He's a freak. He never gets tired. He talked the whole time during the marathon. I couldn't get one word out. I'm serious. There was one point, Dad, I said, Dad, you're talking too much. And then later on in the race, I said, Dad, just talk the whole time. Start with your life story, because I don't want to say a word. He just talked the whole time. The guy's lungs are just amazing. But I hit that wall, and in one point, I thought I was just going to burst into tears, and I had no idea why. You ever feel that? In the Bible... It says there's a cloud of witnesses that have finished the race and they know how tough it is. They've been through everything. Well, first of all, the biggest cheerleader in that cloud of witnesses is Jesus. He's done it. And the reason he's so passionate that we don't give up and quit or, or lay down our cross is because he's finished. There are people, the Bible says we're surrounded by a cloud of witnesses that are cheering us on. They have finished the race their pain is no more. They see what they were only hoping to see when they were on earth. And they're up there going, please do not quit. There is nothing worth losing your faith for. Amen. And if they could come down and just shake us sometimes, they would. And I think we need it. They were the people that lived under the old and new covenant that finished the race that we're running now. And they went through very similar things, some, some even worse. But they're having a party in heaven. And all they are praying for is that we can see the finish line. And whatever happens, 
Don't give up. About a year and a half ago in Seattle, Scott Green passed away. And his memorial was a moving time. It was a celebration of one of the most visionary lives I've ever met. He trained me. It was an amazing time. But one of the things I know is when Scott got to the end of his life with brain cancer, it was really hard. It's not hard anymore. He got that crown that was waiting for him. He received the reward. He finished. And if he could talk to us now, he would say, look, no matter what you're feeling, no matter how hard life is for you, I'm telling you, don't lay your cross down. There's a guy a couple months ago in my church named Ed Martin, career Coast Guard guy, got prostate cancer. And he was really young. And I had to do his memorial service a couple months ago. And for us left, the guy was really faithful. And for us left, it was a very difficult time. But I know Ed. I can see his face. I can hear his voice. And if, I, if he could talk to us right now, he would say, do not, under any circumstances, let anything steal your faith. Because it's good here. Linda Smith. A gal we had to bury this last Sunday before I came down here. We had a time just of sharing about her. And she had real advanced diabetes and all kinds of complications that came from that. It's over now for her. And she was, remember Linda, Dad? She was a very vocal, very faithful woman. And if she could talk to us right now, she'd be preaching so hard. And she would go for hours on do not lay down your cross. There is nothing worth letting your faith be stolen from you. I was at Kathy Hammond's memorial uh, almost a year ago now in Toronto. We're very close to the Hammond family. And someone got up and says, I, I wrote this down because when, when Kathy was on her deathbed, this is exactly what she wanted me to say. Here it is. Don't ever give up. And then she said, and she wanted her memorial service to basically be a worship service. So the rest of the time, was worship. It was a very moving time. If Kathy could talk to us, she'd say the same thing. The author of Hebrews says, look, I know you're going through some stuff. I know you have reasons to be discouraged and, and disillusioned. Quite frankly, you might even have reasons to be kind of ticked off. But don't let it get to you. Your faith is worth everything. Make sure you keep the sin that so easily entangles and everything that hinders you out of the way so you can stay focused on your faith. It says that. It says, don't let the sin that easily entangles you take you out. Sin entangles us. Now, I see a lot of older Christians in the room. We know that sin is not good. For the most part, we've cut it out. There might be some people in here tonight that say, I have unconfessed, unrepented of sin in my heart. But you know you need to get that out and talk to someone. God will prompt your heart. Somehow it will be exposed. We know better than that. But that's not usually what trips us up. It's the other things. It says, the things that hinder you. You ever thought about what that is? It's not sin. I mean, it could be. But he doesn't call it sin. He puts it in its own category. It's not necessarily sin. But it's dangerous nonetheless. And it can take you out in a more subtle way than sin. Look, Satan is smart. He knows that a full a full assault in your life with really pleasurable sin is probably not going to work because you're disciplined and you'll say no. But what if you can slide a bunch of things into your life that just hinder your progress or slowly steal your faith? What if he could do that? I think he does that. And some of that stuff we don't even see until it's kind of, wow, why am I so upset about stuff? Here's what, here's what hinder means. Hinder means it creates difficulty moving forward. That's when something, when something is hindering you, it's just stopping you from moving forward. It delay. It obstructs. Often it's not blatant sin that stops us, but the little things we allow into our life that get us bitter and angry. Here's the kinds of things that can hinder us. And I will say, I will say in North America and the United States, because honestly, I've been to China, I've been, I've been to India, I've been all over the world, and, and some of the stuff that hinders us, they share with us, but honestly, there's some stuff just unique to us and our faith. And here's some of the stuff that I've seen. Cynicism can hinder you. Just this, yeah, I don't know, man. Church, 
I don't know if I trust anybody anymore. I'm going to come to church, but yeah, I don't know if I can bring any visitors. This cynical attitude that can poison your faith, it can definitely poison the people around you. It can hinder you, though. Here's one. Brace yourself. Have you been hurt by other people? <laughs> exactly. Everyone's laughing, right? Like, please, bro. Of course. Well, so have I. A lot. By the way, did you know that hurt by some other human being is the number one reason people leave our church? Actually, any church. I wish I could say it was some hardcore doctrinal theological issue. That's like six on the list. Number one is disillusionment with people. And it's really, really hinders you. Sometimes we come to church... We read our Bible, and instead of seeing Jesus, we see this picture of a person. And it's, it's not good. It, it hinders your progress. By the way, I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm no deep scholar, but I do know, I believe Jesus would have very little sympathy for us allowing another person to rob our faith. I really do. I think he would say, what on earth? Why did you allow that? Even in this very passage, in verse 3, it says, when you're tempted to get weary, consider him who endured opposition from sinners. Jesus was the most opposed person in the history of the world. And he died and sacrificed himself and was raised again, not bitter, but excited about the opportunity that came through his death. He was the ultimate victim. We're not allowed to let people steal our faith. If your faith is stolen by another person, truthfully, you did probably allow that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing it. I'm just saying. You've got to think hard about that. It can hinder your spiritual progress. I would also say hurt by leaders. I won't say raise your hand. I won't do that, right? <laughs> we know we have. We know we have, and the truth is, I'm a leader, and I know I've hurt people. I've had to apologize to people. I've had to ask them to apologize to me. We're hurting each other all the time. Another thing that can hinder you is letting your idealism be destroyed by something that you don't think should have happened, but it did. Whatever that is. Or something that you think should have happened, but it didn't. In my region in Seattle, there's a few people that over the years have said, look, I raised my kids, I did all the devotionals, I poured my life into the church, I prayed for them every day, and this child of mine is not a Christian, so what's up with that? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But your idealism was high, it wasn't met. Don't let that hinder you, though. Don't let that steal your faith. God has all sorts of reasons why He either allows things or causes them to happen. And honestly, I, I don't know the answers. And let's just be comfortable with not knowing the answers to a lot of things. But don't let that kind of thing hinder your faith or your progress. A lack of forgiveness can hinder you. There's a reason a lack of forgiveness is a salvation issue. Too many people, I talk to too many people in America, in my church, it just rolls off their tongue. I'm not ready to forgive them. It just rolls off. And it's really scary, actually. Because it's not right. It'll hinder you. And here's another one. I, I know I've hit this in my life. Just plain fatigue. Being a Christian for a long, long time, maybe even being in a church where you've done things the, the same way for a long, long time, and you're just like, you know what? I'm tired. I can get to the point, I've been in the ministry a long time, I can get to the point where I can open my Bible some mornings and just yawn. I'm serious. I'm a leader. I've, I've studied the Bible. I've went to Bible school, all that kind of stuff. And sometimes I'm kind of tired and uninspired. But it's not going to hinder me because I know I'm a human and I'm emotional. I'll change my mind maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. I'm not going to let it hinder me. I'm going to keep trusting God and plowing forward. The older you get as a Christian, the more you realize victory is not starting the race, it's finishing the race. I would say starting the race is really the easy part. 
I want to show you a slide. Steve Staten, a friend of mine, came to Seattle and did a survey. Maybe you've seen this. I don't know. He did a survey. Actually, it's called an appreciative inquiry. Names are getting more sophisticated these days. It's really just a survey. I'm like, Steve, what in the world is an appreciative inquiry? It's a fancy, new, modern name for a survey. But he surveyed our church. Um, Scott and Lynn led our church for 18 years. And we felt like, let's take a real, fresh, objective look at our church. What are we missing? What are we doing right? What do we need to see more clearly? Do we have any blinders on? Are there things that we're not seeing clearly? I mean, all of that stuff. And sometimes it is good to have someone objective from the outside do that in your church. Because you can't see what you can't see, right? And he showed this, uh, he showed this graph and it really helped our church. We've had, so, we had a whole fall last year where we split into groups for midweek, just Bible talks for midweeks, and we discussed a bunch of different things related to this little chart. This is a chart that talks about the phases of Christian growth and maturity. And I really think it helped us in Seattle. We have a, a multi-generational church. We have all kinds in Seattle, ex-ministry people, new ministry people, idealistic, cynical, everything in between. And this really helped us. Uh, number one, you've got baptism. That is like the beginning of a marathon. Let's go. What are we waiting for? Why is everybody not running faster, right? <laughs> Those are the guys that sprint out because their faith is new. They, they really believe, and I think they should, and I think older Christians should never tell them to calm down on this. They really believe God can do anything. Don't be the older Christian in another phase that says, stop doing that, you'll learn, life is hard. Don't do that. That's a very cynical, hindering thing to do, right? But that's stage one of Christian maturity. Then there's the enthusiast. These are a lot of the younger families in my church. Maybe zero, maybe up to five years as a Christian. You know, you're not necessarily sprinting. Ouch, that kind of hurts a little bit. But really, this is a little easier than we thought, right? A lot of little kids, a lot of, you know, why aren't we meeting for Bible talk six nights a week? Why are we, why are we only having midweek once a week? We should have two services a Sunday, that kind of stuff. Jake's like, yeah. In my marathon, that was like miles six to 13. The baptism phase and the enthusiast, they get along really well. They're the ones that are like, let's go. Darren, why aren't we going faster? Then there's the dispirited. And it sounds as awful as it is, right? As the name. Something happened where being a Christian is not a lot of fun anymore. It's a real grind, actually. You remember those two first phases. In fact, your best days may have been in those first two phases. But no one told you that in phase three, 10 or 15 or 20 years into my Christian life, this awful thing was going to happen. No one told me that the guy leading my church, this or that, or the person in my Bible talk, or the, the women's ministry leader over here would give such bad advice. No one said that. No one said my son or my daughter wasn't going to become a Christian, and so you get dispirited. The people in phase three and one and two don't get along sometimes in a church. It's really hard. It's heartbreaking, too. The dispirited are like, you know what, stop with that. I, I don't like that idealistic stuff. I've been to marriage retreats and the dispirited people are all like, who's going to get up there and talk about how difficult marriage and parenting is? And then a someone in phase one or two gets up there and goes, my kid, he's five years old. He had six quiet times this week. God is good. My family's righteous and spiritual. And the person in number three goes, give me a break. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Everyone, everyone's, everyone's shaking their head. You know what I'm talking about. And I do more work getting people in three and two and one to get along. But I'm, I'm fine with the work. This is the church. This is a dynamic in the church. Um, what you got to understand if you're in number three is it will pass. It really will. And you'll get to number four. And I have so many people in Seattle that are number four, and that's mature. Mature is this. It's not like you haven't been dispirited. You've been in all those phases. In fact, I have, there's a guy in my church named Mike who is, who's in the mature phase and he's got, if you've got some stories of the dispirited phase, his are way worse. I'm telling you, he's got some bad ones. You know, if, if we all lined up and said, 
terrible story about the church, my brothers and sisters, a leader or my faith, you would have to get behind this guy and he'd be at the podium almost the whole time. I'm serious. But he doesn't. He said, I can't live in number three anymore. I'm not happy there. I want to finish. You begin to think, you know, I've gone this far. Why would I ever quit? I remember getting here in the marathon. I'm like, oh, this is awful. But if I quit now, what a lame story that will be, right? Wow. If I quit now, I I couldn't even feel my legs. People are handing me salt packets. I'm like throwing everything away. And I was just, I I remember at the Marine Depot in San Diego, we finally finished. But I was like, that would have been the lamest thing to preach about. I got to mile 19 and quit. So that's why I finished, so I could preach about that, right? (laughs) We need people to graduate from three to four. These people get it. They're the ones that calm down number three. They're the ones that should minister to number three. They're the ones that take number one and two and say, hey, look, don't take that guy personally. Uh, Don't worry about it, but just don't oversimplify things. And and they say to number three, don't overgeneralize your problems. Not everyone feels that way. They help your church mature. And most of these people are not in the full-time ministry. They have regular jobs, regular people who have had regular struggles, and we need these people. It's John 6, verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and, and have come to know. Now you are the Holy One of God. In other words, he said, It's hard. We've gone this far. We're not quitting now. That's the mature phase. The point of Hebrews... Don't get really far into the race and then quit. Obviously, people do this. And you know what? When people quit or walk away, the story isn't over for them. Can we stop acting like it is? I don't like to say someone fell away from the church. If you look that up theologically, it's a a terrible place to be. I think it it, it doesn't provide hope for people that have left the church. I, I, I think the story is far from over. If you have a child that's wandering, the story is so far from being over. Honestly. God is way more powerful than we like to think sometimes. But quitting is risky. Have you ever done something massively physically exerting and then just sat down for a while? You know what I'm saying? And you get up and you're like, oh, and you sit back down. Don't do that. Take some gel or something. Take some Gatorade. Keep moving or move a little slower, but don't sit down. Don't take a break. Spiritually, quitting is really risky. Satan works on your heart. You can be so lethargic spiritually that it's too much work to come back. That's part of Satan's plan. I would rather we create an atmosphere in the church. I've talked in Seattle. Why don't we just have a bench? If you need to take a break and sit down, just go over on the bench. Go on the injured reserve, but don't leave. And let's make it hard for people to leave. Don't say like, well, if you don't figure it out, you're not really a disciple. Look, you can be figuring it out. It can be really ugly, but you're still a disciple, okay? Let's have a bench where people can recuperate and not oversimplify the spiritual struggles that we go through. Now, I know this is in our DNA because the problem with the particular movement we, um, which I love, I love our movement, I really do, but we have problems. And one particular problem is we, didn't, we, we put speed on spiritual growth and progress, and church growth and progress. So it has to be done this fast or it's lame. That was one of our worst mistakes. Where in the Bible does it tell us how fast to grow spiritually or mathematically? Seriously, where is that scripture? Now it says, be bold, be radical, uh, believe in God. I mean, I think if you really believe in God's power, you set some radical goals. But it says nothing about how fast we do this. We put this speed thing on each other and then we worry and we wonder. And then we allow people or situations to take us out and cut in on the races, Paul says. Galatians 5, 7. It says this, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? 
Who cut in on you? What person did you allow to come in and steal your idealism and make you sit down and quit? If you let people take your idealism, you're cooked. Don't even let people slow you down. Now, don't always listen to the noise when people are like, hurry up, hurry up. That's what, that's what I just got them talking about. But people aren't our God. Jesus is our God. And the point of Hebrews is that God has spoken his final word to humanity in his son Christ. To abandon Christ is to abandon your faith altogether. Everything is at stake. And that's why he says, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He says, keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. That is the key. More Jesus, less us. Honestly. There are many people in the cloud of witnesses, but only one lived a perfect life. That's Jesus. Often, we act as if people are the source of our faith. I like the fact that that we in our churches really emphasize relationship. But relationship and close relationships are a far cry from people are the source of my inspiration for my faith. And sometimes we get the two confused. I heard one veteran Christian in Seattle, I won't tell you their name because you'll probably look on Facebook or something, not going to do that. You know what I'm saying? Who's he talking about? You might even find out right now. Um, one veteran Christian I asked him a long time, I said, how are you so idealistic about your faith and the church? He invests in the church, serves in the church, teaches in the church, all the stuff in the church. He doesn't work for the church. He just loves his church and he's very invested, but he's been through so much hardship. I said, how, how do you do that? Here's his answer. I wrote it down. The church is temporary. It's made up of people. It's important to God and a necessary part of my walk, so I need to treat it as important and value it. But God is eternal, not the church. So I get my faith from God. I do my best with people. And above all, I watch my expectations. He's one of our most faithful members. We start looking around to people. We go off track in a minute. You know, I did, it wasn't the marathon, but I ran a half marathon and it's really easy to compare yourself to everyone running the race. People have amazing gear. They have shoes that are awesome. They have really short shorts that cost like hundreds of dollars. And I'm in like these basketball looking shorts. I, I don't look the part. I'm like, what am I doing out here with these people, right? They, they're wearing thousands more dollars than I do. And it made it worse one day. I'm trying to run my own race. And I'm running along like mile five. This guy comes up to me. This is not making this up. He comes running up to me and he goes, hey. You need some new shoes. I'm like, I didn't even know the guy. And I said, you need some better boundaries. Who are you, right? And I said, what are you talking about? I'm huffing and puffing. And he's like, you're flat-footed. Those are the wrong shoes. Stop being a cheapskate. Buy some. I'm like, leave. Go. Run. I think I, I, think I fell back. I'm like, who is this guy? criticizing a guy he doesn't know for the shoes he's wearing. But you know what? I thought about the rest of that race. My lame shoes. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank you for nothing. And then from then on, I was thinking about my shoes. That guy made me so insecure. Should have shared my faith with him. I, was too, I didn't have enough wind to share my faith with him. I was too mad. By the way, that is why we don't point people to ourselves and our own opinions. We point them in our discipling relationships to Jesus, folks, because he'll tell you the shoes to wear and how, to, how fast to run and all that. It's not just our job. Him pointing me to his strong opinions about my shoes made me insecure. Don't even compare your churches to other churches. Run your own race. My dad and I went riding yesterday, riding motorcycles, rode 250 miles. By the way, San Diego County is awesome for motorcycle riding. We went with Chris, uh, Janet's son-in-law, who rides this um, enduro bike and likes to ride really fast. He is so fast. And he was leading the way. And we're going through Julian and all these places with a lot of cars. And I mean, he's riding like Jason Bourne up there. And we're trying to follow him. And I almost made a, a very big mistake. I was trying to keep up with him. 
And at one point, I don't think I told you this, Dad. I didn't want to worry you. I, I crossed on a double yellow line. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I hope I didn't pass you guys up picking apples up there or something. I mean, I was just like, what am I doing? And I fell back. And Chris was like miles up there. But I'm like, you go. You're my hero, but I'm not, I'm not trying to keep up with you. And then I went a little faster and I couldn't find my dad. I slowed down and he just came up. He was riding his own ride. I said, I need to follow my father and not Jason Bourne up there because I'm going to die if I do that, right? <laughs> we even compare, we compare our faith to other people. We compare our churches to other churches. Stop doing that. You are your own church. You have your own resources, your own goals. We just need to stop with the comparisons to people. We have to, I'll, I'll skip that. I'm going way too long. We've got to stop talking about winning all the time. That's another point in here. Um, when it's about our performance, we get messed up very quickly. Look, I don't know what place I took in the San Diego Marathon. I think I took like a millionth, honestly. I don't even know. I don't even know where they were published, but I wasn't in it, whatever it was. I finished like 10 hours later. And my dad was pulling me along. But you know what the, end, you know what the back side of this medal says? Finisher. That's what it says. And I do not care what place in heaven I get. It doesn't matter. I just want to live my life strongly. I want to try to take as many people as possible. I want to learn the lessons God has me to learn right in front of me. I want to stop comparing myself to other people. I want to stop putting that energy on my church. And just teach people to run the race with faith. I'll never forget crossing the finish line. I all of a sudden was energized when we crossed the finish line. And this lady says, come over here. And I stumbled over. And she, she put this medal on my neck and she says, congratulations, you finished. And it was worth it. I didn't remember anything up to that point. It was like, pain? What pain? I was like, I'm going to run more. And then I'm like, what are you talking about? You're not running any more marathons. But I was super motivated after that. And then we went to In-N-Out. Remember that? It was awesome. <laughs> but I want to encourage you. I'm throwing out a lot of thoughts. Honestly, I'm throwing out a lot of thoughts. But where do you fit into this? Who are your eyes fixed on? What glasses are you wearing? Are you looking more at people? Or are you looking at the Savior? Do you see limitations in your church? Or do you say, you know what, our church is full of people. Let's just dream big again. Why do we have to, let's not compare ourselves over there. What do you see in front of you? What do you see in your brothers and sisters? What do you see about the people that are ahead of you in the race and the people that are behind you in the race? I know, I, I love being at stage four in maturity. And I'm trying to get as many people up there with me. I think our churches need to do that. I want to end with 1 Corinthians 9. Because it talks about a race. Wherever you are in the race, keep running. And this week in your groups, this week at midweek, this week with your coffee times, whatever, talk about what's hindering you from seeing things in a very idealistic way. Talk about what's hindering you or making you tempted to quit. Really, talk about it. But we need to run with a purpose. It doesn't say run fast. It doesn't say dust everyone behind you. It doesn't say have ten baptisms by mile three. This scripture doesn't say anything like that. It just says run with a purpose. It just says run like it's the most important race you're ever competing in. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, says, Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Your friends that died faithful are wearing that crown. That's why we're running this race. It says in verse 26, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave. So that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The scripture says to me, be intentional. 
Lay it out. Use your God-given talents here. Don't waste one second letting people be your God, putting people above God, chucking your idealism because of people. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And get rid of the things that hinder us. Here's, before we take the Lord's Supper, here's what's, what I'm praying about for me. And this is just, these are my shoes. If they fit, wear them. You got your own shoes, right? By the way, I have lame shoes. The guy, guy told me that, right? I'm trying to pray a lot more and think and worry a lot less. I have, my brain is so full of things with my family, with uh, my kids, with the church, with my job. I can literally, if I let myself lay awake and just worry about it. What? You're a minister. I know. We're all human. I need to pray a lot more, and I'm working on that. I want to be a better listener. I'm trying to surround myself in my church with people who are really good decision, decision makers because I don't want the pressure just to fall on me in that category. I want to use, I'm praying that I can, we can help in Seattle use everyone's gifts and talents, and if they are better at it, then they need to lead it. It's really good. I'm trying to invite more people in my life that can help me grow. I think you've heard this said before. A faithful Christian that makes it to the end, in general, has about six to seven good relationships that know them well, that can call them higher, that know when they're doing good and know when they're doing bad, and can see right through the, the, the things that we display on the outside. Amen. I'm trying to empower the people in my life to speak more truth to me. And I'm trying to see more God, clear, God more clearly in all that I do. I want to see more of God, and I want to see less of people. And so much more. I've done a good job getting the sins out of my life. There's still sins in there, but, but, but I've, 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 I've disciplined and I've checked the big sins. But every day there's something trying to hinder my faith in Jesus. As you take the Lord's Supper, I want to ask you a question. What about you? And what will you do about it this week? Let's all bow. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are just honored to be able to remember and in fact celebrate Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. We take this bread that symbolizes his body that was broken for us. He denied himself and he did it. He obeyed and opened up life because of his body being broken. And we take the juice that represents the blood that was spilled for us and all the pain and agony that was in there. And we want to remember that sacrifice. And we also want to remember his resurrection and the idealism that he brought to the world after having suffered so much. May it inspire us, motivate us, and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.